good morning. It's wonderful to be with you today to bring God's word to you. We're looking at 2 Samuel chapter 21. Please turn there in your Bibles, your, your phones. If you're, if you're using the church Bibles, this is going to be page 274. They're underneath the chairs in front of you. Um, so 2 Samuel 21, and we'll begin at verse 15. We're finishing up this chapter this week. Second Samuel 21, verses 15 through 22, beginning of verse 15. There was war again between the Philistines and Israel, and David went down together with his servants, and they fought against the Philistines. And David grew weary, and Ishbi Benab, one of the descendants of the giants, whose spear weighed 300 shekels of bronze, and who was armed with a new sword, thought to kill David. But Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, came to his aid and attacked the Philistine and killed him. Then David's men swore to him, You shall no longer go out with us to battle, lest you quench the lamp of Israel. After this, there was again war with the Philistines at Gob. Then Sebekai the Hushathite struck down Saph, who was one of the descendants of the giants. And there was again war with the Philistines at Gob, and Elhanan, the son of Jar-Oragim, the Bethlehemite, struck down Goliath, the Gittite, the shaft of whose spear was like a weaver's beam. And there was again war at Gath, where there was a man of great stature who had six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot, twenty-four in number. And he also was descended from the giants. And when he taunted Israel, Jonathan, the son of Shimei, David's brother, struck him down. These four were descended from the giants in Gath, and they fell by the hand of David and by the hand of his servants. God's word. Let's pray. Dear Lord, Father, we pray to you this morning. We ask that you would bless the words of your servant as he proclaims them. We pray that you'd bless the listeners, your people, as they seek to hear your truth. We pray that you'd bless your word. May it go out and be fruitful. May your spirit teach us, and may we listen. In Jesus' name, amen. When I was young, my parents uh, would take my family to French Creek Bible Conference every Labor Day weekend. Now I get to take my own family uh, for that conference. But part of going to French Creek, if you've not been there before, is the uh, long walk from the mess hall to the cabins deep in the woods at night. The trees are very tall and thick. And so even if the moon is out, it can be quite dark on that walk. And if there isn't a moon, you can't see your hand in front of your face. It is pitch dark, which means that a good flashlight is very important. One particular night when my younger sister and I, I think maybe we were uh, like nine and ten years old, we uh, were heading back from the mess hall to our cabin. And so we, we set out with one flashlight between us as we turned off the gravel road onto the 
skinny dirt path that would take us to our cabin, the flashlight began to flicker a bit. We looked at each other nervously and we kept going deeper into the woods. It flickered again and it went out. I, uh, I don't know that I typically liked to hold hands with my sister at that point in my life, but I was not too particular in that darkness. And so we stumbled, we tripped our way through the woods, honestly, no, hopeless of, of finding our cabin. I mean, it completely dark. You can only feel your way. So we are lost in those woods, stumbling around, uh, until we saw a light. As we got closer to the light, we could see a shadow swaying back and forth in front of the light. And finally, we realized it was actually the shadow of our dad's hammock uh, through the window of his cabin. And I think we probably stopped holding hands at that point. We were excited. We had finally found our way, uh, thanks to that light. Now, if some of you smart kids out there were to tell me what we should have done better in that situation, you would probably say, well, Pastor Az, you probably should have taken better care of that flashlight of yours. Uh, maybe made sure you had fresh batteries, bring a, a few extras, a few spares along with you. And in our sermon text today, David's men learned the importance of safeguarding their light. David. The, the king who saved them from the Philistines and who showed them how to be true giant slayers. And their story has an important uh, application to you because you, Christian, are also called to safeguard the light by continuing your Savior's war against evil and shining forth his light for all to see. That will be the main point of my sermon today. Christian, continue your Savior's fight against evil by shining forth his light. Now, who is the Savior in this text? Well, it's David. Uh, now, remember, this section of the book of 2 Samuel, we talked about this last week, um, is a reminder that Despite all the bad things we've seen over the past couple months that happened in the later years of, of David's life, he remains God's chosen king. Chapters 21 through 24 are made up of six different portraits chosen by the narrator from various parts in David's life that are all to prove this point. I showed you the chiasm last week with those six different points. And, and this section in particular really does remind us that David was the savior of his people. And so that's my first point, the savior, the savior. If you were to look back over David's life, who would you say is the major sort of archetypal enemy that he delivers Israel from? Uh, the answer is the Philistines, right? Yeah, of course, he fought battles against the, the Moabites, the Amalekites, the Edomites, Syrians as well. But if you were going to choose one enemy nation that was kind of the arch enemy of Israel at that point in history, it's absolutely the Philistines. And we could take this even a step farther because who most represents the Philistines? 
their hero Goliath, right? Uh, whom David killed. And we learn in this text that they've got a couple more of these giants, like Goliath, running around with their big weapons and their mocking words. These are the Philistine heroes. They represent the might of the Philistine army, crushed by David and his men. You see, of all the many, many, many battles in David's life that the narrator could have chosen to put in here in this section, he chose four that most illustrate David is the one who saves God's people from their enemies. And there's a reason why this would be so significant for the uh, original readers of this text, for people in Israel back then. God had promised them that David would defeat the Philistines. He would be the one to deliver them from the Philistines. 2 Samuel 3.18, By the hand of my servant David, I will save my people Israel from the hand of the Philistines and from the hand of all their enemies. Notice, God himself singles out and names the Philistines as sort of representative of all these enemies that he's going to deliver the Israelites from. And, you know, to some degree, even the, the monarchy in Israel was formed as a reaction to this problem, the Philistine problem. When, when Saul uh, was crowned king, the first king of Israel, the Israelites were being greatly oppressed by the Philistines. And Saul has some initial success defeating them, but it becomes pretty clear pretty quickly, right, when David defeats Goliath, really, that in fact, he is the one who will deliver Israel from the Philistines. David, like Jesus, succeeded in saving his people. Saul, like Adam, failed to deliver his people. That's the force of this text. David is the savior of Israel. He defeats the forces of evil who rise up against God's people, represented here by these Philistine giants. But David dies, and evil rises once more. Even in David's own heart, we've seen, right, in the book of 2 Samuel, evil has its residence. And so the distressed people of God throughout time have strained their eyes for another savior. And every king that came after David was compared to him and fell short. Yet the promise of God remained to sit another son of David on the throne of Israel forever. It's reasserted again and again with its image clarified and, and crystallized even during the time of the exile of God's people through prophecy. I mean, the prophet Jeremiah at a point in his life where he was imprisoned by the future king of Israel and the armies of Babylon are surrounding the city of Jerusalem, readying themselves to burn it to the ground and exile the people. At that point in Jeremiah's life, these are his words. He says in Jeremiah thirty-three fourteen, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and the house Judah. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David, and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved, and Jerusalem will dwell securely. And this is the name by which it will be called, the Lord is our righteousness. And so the people going into exile strained their eyes 
to see this Savior that Jeremiah spoke of until the angels came and announced the arrival of Jesus who would save his people from their sins. He is both our Lord and our righteousness. And yet we still strain our eyes to see our Savior, don't we? We await his return. And so how does this text help us while we wait? Well, in four short accounts of battles long ago, we are reminded that God keeps his promises. He kept his promise that he promised the people of Israel that through David he would defeat their enemies at that time, the Philistines. And here at the end of David's life, we're told he did it. There will come a day when the defeat of evil in this world and in your hearts will be like these battles, simply an entry on a list that reminds us of the heroic deeds of the Davidic king and his servants. It's hard to see that day, but simple things like this can help us. The giants of evil in your life that taught you so terribly now will one day be simply an entry in a book remembered only insofar as they bring glory to the Lord and to those who serve him. Now, some of you may have been thinking, well, I see how in a broad sense, David is the savior of Israel, but it does seem like in this text, his men are really the main characters. They do all the work. And you're right. David is the lamp but his men are his hands and his feet. And so let's turn to my second point, the heroes. My second point, the heroes. This is absolutely the most curious part about this text to me. We're we're talking about David, uh, but he only shows up in the first battle and he doesn't really do that well. He's weary and one of his men have to come to his aid. Why would the narrator do this? Surely he could have easily found, you know, four battles where David does well, uh, or at least maybe one where David is the hero, and, and, you know, maybe just leave out that one where David is weary and he needs help. That doesn't look very good. There's a point being made here. The victory of David's kingdom is not accomplished simply through his own toil and his own blood, but also through the battles of his servants. There's a a recapitulation of David's own victory over Goliath going on here, right? I mean, remember, before David was even crowned king, he was just the secretly anointed king of God's people. He defeated Goliath by trusting the Lord, by crushing his head on the battlefield and freeing Israel from his mocking tyranny. But now, here, each of his own men must defeat their own Goliath. If you're paying attention to the text here, almost every Philistine has something that connects him to that first Goliath. In verse 16, Ishbi Banab has a spear that weighs 300 shekels of bronze, reminding us of the spear that Goliath had that weighed an appropriately heftier 600 shekels. And then we, have, uh, come, we come to this description in verse 18 of Saf, the next giant here. He doesn't get as much description, but he is where we are told he is one of the descendants of the giants. That connects him as well to Goliath. 
And then in verse 19, we've got another giant called Goliath, the Gittite, who, similar to the first Goliath, has a spear whose shaft is like a weaver's beam. That's the same description that's described as the first Goliath. And you may have wondered, you know, why does this guy have the same name? What's going on there? And there are lots of possible reasons for this. It could be that was simply a common name for these people. Uh, it could be that uh, he was named after the first Goliath. Uh, he may have been related. The parallel text to this one in First Chronicles actually says he was Goliath's brother. And so that may be part of what's going on there. It's also possible that Goliath was more of a title, just for big guys in general. It wasn't really a proper name necessarily. Then we have the final guy in verse 20, this final giant. He's, we're told he's a man of great stature. Again, a connection to Goliath. He's got extra toes and fingers. That's a unique addition. And he taunts Israel just like Goliath did. Right? What's going on here? David's servants are reliving a piece of his own life. It reminds me of John chapter 13 and John chapter 15, where Jesus twice tells his disciples, a servant is not greater than his master. First, he tells them that to show them that they need to wash each other's feet like he has just washed their feet. And then he tells them that to show them that as he has been attacked by the world, they also will be attacked by the world. Jesus is saying, what I, the master, have experienced, you also will experience. And what I do, you, the servants, must also do. A servant is not greater than his master. You see, here's the point the narrator is making with these carefully chosen accounts. The servants of the king must act like the king. Even better, the servants of the king want to act like the king. I just love that second half of verse 17. I feel like it really reveals the emotion and the passion of David's servants for him. Uh, you shall no longer go out with us to battle lest you quench the lamp of Israel. There's a world of love and loyalty communicated in that one simple sentence. It shows us the deep value they placed in their leader. You know, I could make all sorts of valid applications here about how, you know, the importance of followers to the success of a leader's plan or how, you know, followers need to care well for their leaders. But I would much rather just cut right to the point here. Who is your Lord and how do you value him? David's men are ready to fight his battles for him. All they want is his light. They boldly follow his example by fighting the giants of evil that rise up against the kingdom of God. And who are these giants of evil that we face? Ephesians 6 verse 1 tells us not flesh and blood, but rather the spiritual forces of evil in this world. They may control people at times, and so we may need to resist deceivers, and false teachers, but always remembering that the ultimate source of, of evil is the power of sin at work in the flesh of humanity, the, the great idolatries of this dark age, the devil, and the spiritual powers of evil that serve him. 
And we fight these beings with the armor given to us by God, right? We need to remember that too. The belt of truth, which readies us for action. The breastplate of Christ, which protects our most vital organs. The the shoes of the gospel of peace, which make us ready to share the gospel at all times. The shield of faith with which we can stop the arrows of accusation and doubt that the the devil throws at us. The the helmet of salvation with which we can persevere. And, And of course, the word of God, which is the sword of the spirit, and it pierces to the heart. And at all times, Paul tells us in Ephesians 6, praying in the spirit, with all prayer and supplication. You are called to be like the heroes in this text, who are themselves called to be like David, and all of us are called to be like Christ. For Jesus does not make the church his body so that it can lie down on the couch and nap away the days of evil. He makes us his body so that we can move. A servant is not greater than his master. Christ fought and crushed the serpent. Now it is your turn to lift his lamp high and to defeat the followers of the serpent. But you will not be alone, for you have the lamp. So this is my third point, the lamp. If you remember my introduction, you don't want to get stuck in a dark place without a flashlight. This world is a dark place. You need a lamp, or you will not know where to go and what to do. David's men have a lamp. They are, they're the main characters. Notice all of them are fully named. They are honored for their service to David here by being named. Yet, David is with them. Because he is their lamp. He is the one who went before them. He inspires them. They fight for him. He is honored by their victories. Notice in verse 22, it says, these giants fell by the hand of David and by the hand of his servants. Well, (laughs) David doesn't physically strike down any of these guys, right? But he gets the glory because they do it for him. His physical absence from these final three battles actually accents his value because it reminds us of how now they sacrifice for him. And this image of a lamp is a powerful one because as we saw in Psalm 132, which Bill read for us earlier, it's a messianic image. Uh, You might not have even noticed it when he read it. I'm not sure, although he was pointing out the lamp word pretty well. So maybe you did. But Psalm 132 reminds us that the Lord swore to David a sure oath that one of his sons would sit forever on his throne. And then he records the Lord's words in verse 17, that he will make a horn sprout for David and a lamp for his anointed. And those two images, the horn and the lamp, those are pictures of David's forever ruling son, Jesus. And Jesus is our light in the way that David was a lamp for his men. John tells us about Jesus, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. The true light which gives light to all has come into the world and and not all when they see it will receive it, but to those who do, they have the right 
to be called the children of God. And Jesus tells his servants in Matthew 5.14 that they have become the light of the world because they are called to lift his light before all the eyes of the people. And what's more, this light cannot be quenched. David's men did everything to try to protect the lamp of David, even refusing to allow him to fight at their side. But they could not keep their beloved king alive. On the other hand, Jesus allowed his lamp to be quenched. He did not allow his people to die for him. Rather, he chose to die for them, for you, because he alone was able to defeat death and burst forth again with light from the grave. For it was not possible for him to be quenched. Isaiah 42.3, a bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth. Christian, this is your lamp. Do not be afraid to lift him up for all to see. He will not disappoint. He is not absent for your, from your battles. He is present with you like a cloudy pillar by day and a fiery pillar by night, shedding light on the way forward, giving purpose to your daily battles. If you do not feel that purpose, perhaps it is because you have not claimed fully his banner. What other king would you want to act like? To whom else will you go? In him is life, and that life is the light of men. And so as we turn now to the Lord's Supper, let me urge you to claim this king as your lamb. Just like David defeated the great enemy of God's people, Goliath. Jesus defeated the greatest enemy of God's people, Satan. And even as David's servants in turn had to fight the powers of evil in their world, you also are called now to take up the armor of Christ and fight for his kingdom. But like David's men, we the church are not alone. For we have an unquenchable lamp at our head. And in this meal, he calms our fears, he heals our wounds, and he strengthens us to fight his battles. Let's pray. Father God, we do praise you for your son, who is our lamp, the head of the body. Lord, he calls us to walk, to move, to act together as his church. We pray that you'd give us strength to do this. We pray that as we see even this list of a few battles in David's life, we would uh, be encouraged, Lord, that you keep your promises and that one day the defeat of evil will be simply a list that brings glory to yourself and to those who serve you. We, Lord, know that we have not deserved to be your servants, and yet, Lord, you have called us out, given us the right to be called the children of God. So as we look at the light, we claim it as our own. We praise you for being quenched, 
for our sake and, Lord, for your power, which showed itself in the fact that you were unquenchable. And Jesus rose from the grave victorious. And we, Lord, know that that victory is ours as we serve him. We pray these things in Jesus' name.